Hello world, welcome to Political Worldview Podcast, March 27th, 2017, IndyRef 2 and Europe's Borders Edition. I am Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham here in England. I am joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Kristala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello there, Kristala. Hello there, Adam. How are you? I'm very well, and you're uh, just cheering me up just by being here with the multicoloured um, array uh, that you're wearing. I was going to say array of garments, but it's all one garment. It's merely, <laughs> it, is, it contains it within it multitudes. However, today, pink and green and today, blue. Today, listeners, that's right. I'm wearing pink, green and blue, all in one outfit. I don't know if there is a country crazy. whose flag resembles that, but there <laughs> should be. I think they should. someone who's looking for new opportunities should think about that because it, it works pretty well. Just, just for gender equality here, Adam is wearing blue checks. You're wearing as many colours as I am, I to be fair. They're just not like as obvious. It's very like, thinly yeah. uh, sliced. It's understated. It's more wearing, a reflection like, of your character. I'm, I'm a little more colourful than sometimes is the case. It's true. Clearly, it's clearly true. that's uh, it's just one of those weeks. It is. The dull weather has led us to, to dress up. And, and also. Our third attendee is Scott, Scott Lucas, Professor Scott Lucas uh, of International Politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. Also a natty waistcoat wearer yes. on this occasion. Crisp white shirt underneath. Thank you very much. Doesn't happen often, but occasionally we do the laundry. Yeah. World's still crazy. We're still here. So yeah, I you, guess that's a plus. I think you are wearing the most sedately colored upper body garments <laughs> of the three of us in the group, which is a very unusual distribution of color between between the group. Trying to maintain camouflage right now. You never know. Black and white is your, are your camouflage go-to colors? Yeah, black and white, you know. It's like, you know. Like yeah. The eyes say, don't see it. He likes to lie on chessboards. Uh, <laughs> chessboards, zebra crossings, you know, Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney videos. Inside joke there, everybody. Blend right in. Our two topics today. First, the Scottish Government declares its intention to seek a second independence referendum, adding one more massive uncertainty to the pile accumulating in London since the UK's referendum vote to leave the European Union last year. Second, one year after a deal between the EU and Turkey to stem the flow of migrants and refugees westward, new reports suggest the plight of those stuck at the Union's external borders is as bleak as ever. Could Europe do better? I suspect the answer will be yes. And what does better to look like. On March 13th, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, cheerfully threw a hand grenade into the conference room of the British government, currently consumed by the task of ineptly planning for Britain's negotiations to exit the EU, by announcing her intention to seek a second referendum on Scottish independence imminently. Her stated desire was that it should be held sometime after the terms of Britain's exit from the European Union have become clear, but before the departure itself has occurred, which at present would put it sometime in the back end of 2018. Prime Minister Theresa May responded by saying that what with everything else now going on, now was, quote, not the time for another Scottish uh, vote. Although what the UK government's formal response will be to Edinburgh's formal request when it comes is yet to be seen. For those with short memories, Scotland last voted on independence in 2014 when it rejected the idea by 55 to 45%. Uh, That was thought to have ended the matter for a generation, but the argument now is that the Brexit vote, in which Scottish voters went against the tide of the national vote by voting to remain, represents a major change meriting a new take. That earlier vote had lasting consequences. One was that it brought the independence vote together with new energy and increased size under the banner of the Scottish National Party. The other was that it contributed to the decimation of the once mighty Labour Party in Scotland. It has since been almost wiped out in Westminster as a representative of Scottish seats and is much reduced in representation at the Scottish Parliament in Holyrood. So, will this referendum happen? If so, what chance the result will be different this time? And what effect will this have on British national politics in the meantime? Let's crank up the speculation-o-tron and dive into those questions. Scott, what do you, what, what, what do you think? Do you, is this a real thing that is actually going to happen, or is this just an elaborate pantomime of uh, position and counter-position? Let's start with something which is not speculation. Theresa May said to Scotland, we're coming out of Europe, and no matter how messed up, screwed up, 
plane crash horrific this is, you're stuck with us. And Nicholas Sturgeon and some of Scotland said, no, we're not. And that's simply what there, it is here, is that Sturgeon and the S&P are preserving some type of freedom of action before Brexit is finalized. Because right now, at least in the opinion of Sturgeon and of many in the S&P, and I'm sure some others in Scotland, this is the only option you've got. Uh, they had asked, where, after the vote was, uh, referendum was cast, they'd asked the British government for the freedom to at least talk about alternative arrangements to a simple invocation of Article 50, of Scotland perhaps having a certain status with the EU, which would accompany but may be slightly different from the rest of the UK's status. And uh, Westminster said no. They asked again if there could be some type of consideration of the single market to avoid, again, the plane crash that is going to occur when Britain cuts itself off economically, and Westminster said no. They asked for some type of consideration beyond simply invoking Article 50 to allow flexibility, for example, allowing European Union nationals to stay in the UK, and Westminster said no. So what do you do at that point? I mean, it, predictably, I've seen a lot of the English press, and let's emphasize English press, weigh in on Sturgeon. This is terrible. This is horrible. This is a, just an ill-judged move. You are right in a sense, Adam, that, that right now it is posturing, but it is posturing that leads for something more serious if we continue on the path that that is being pursued by, uh, by Prime Minister May. Because, you know, I would have done the same thing that the S&P is in because, in effect, when you are in a plane that is going to crash, you look for a parachute by the back exit, and that second referendum is the parachute right now. Okay, I've got a lot of vivid plane disaster-related imagery uh, to the forefront of the forefront of my mind now. Um, well, this is going to be uh, this is going to be a pantomime. Well, I've already said pantomime, haven't I? What, what else can I have? This is going to be a circus. It's going to be a feast. Yeah, of of satire. It, well, I was trying to think of something a little bit more raucous, maybe, maybe than that. This is going to be an orgy of hypocrisy. Oh my goodness, um, that is not something I want in the forefront of my mind. An orgy of hypocrisy, right? Isn't it? Because first of all, we are going to get large numbers of very Brexity people um, who, you know, have distinguished themselves over the course of several months now by their reckless disregard for unforeseen consequences and high transaction costs and um, you know, forward planning inadequacies, etc., when arguing for the idea that Britain needs to leave the EU. Their view is, you know, when presented with any negative consequences likely to arise, their answer is, it's not going to come to that, nothing to, nothing to worry about. Um, and... Uh, when expected to engage with all of the difficult nitty-gritty that might invite rebuttal and therefore uh, uh, you know, ultimately deciding against what they, what they want to advocate, they, they, they wave it away. And the Scottish people uh, and the Scottish government have rightly thought that that should be regarded with a kind of gimlet eye of scepticism. They go, you people are ideologues and utterly disengaged from the real-world consequences of the reckless decision you want to make, and we want no part of it. Um, so we're going to see those people being utter hypocrites by making arguments against Scotland taking the leap into independence that diametrically and directionally oppose exactly the arguments they have just been making for Britain to take a leap into the dark and leave the European Union. On the other hand, amusing as that hypocrisy will be, we should probably accept that it requires a requisite uh, or an equivalent hypocrisy on the other side, probably uh, for the SNP to sustain its position, which is that they've been driven to this move by the sheer irresponsibility of, uh, of Britain as a whole, launching into this unknowable future without adequate planning based on the ideological thrust of the desire to take back control, when basically that's, that, that's the gist of what 
they are wanting to do. Now, their vision for the kind of country they want is somewhat different. They talk a good game about wanting a more social democratic society uh, than, than I think most Brexiteers seem to seem to favour. But um, you know, it, it's going to be it's going to be quite striking that people have moved on supposed positions of principle and logic simply because they're on opposite sides of the argument. And I get that in a way. Um, you know, people whose response to you know Nicola Sturgeon saying. Um, you know, we we were trying to negotiate a, a special status for Scotland, and the British government hasn't been understanding and thoughtful enough in its response to all of that. And you know, no one has tried harder to avoid this than us. But here we are. Like you know, there's an appropriate response to that that says that is utterly disingenuous. That's ridiculous. You're playing politics. You've manipulated this situation to get where you want to be. But you know, well politician plays politics shocker they have their agenda they've seen a window they're going to they're going to try and um they're going to try and take the moment but the hypocrisy is going to be on all sides even closer to the surface than usual it it, it seems you're not normally a fan of hypocrisy i don't think i love Cristala. how are you feeling about <clears throat> the prospect of yet another go round on the um the hypocrisy merry-go-round i am looking forward to the memes that are going to continue to come out of this debate um uh, with with great anticipation, I think. But I had the privilege of being in Edinburgh uh, last weekend. Oh, right. I so did. Ju- just after the bomb That's dropped. right. Fell, yep. Um, and what I think is interesting is that maybe Edinburgh isn't reflective of Scotland more broadly. And But nevertheless, I did a one-woman vox pop mm-hmm. of the population and all six people I could find... <laughs> Uh, who had Scottish accents in Edinburgh around where I was. And it felt like people were supporting... So there were two things. From the people that I spoke to, they were strongly supporting Nicola Sturgeon, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And fully buying into the fear. And I guess... And I think they're justified in, in really worrying about what might come of this for Scotland. What was interesting, though, in the newspapers that I saw kind of walking past the stands was that there was a much more divided opinion. And it seems from the few polls that I've seen so far that people who voted for independence back then are not sure that they would vote for independence now. Um, And the arguments that they seem to be making in those few papers that I saw was that uh, they're not quite sure about the economic merits of of separation mm. from from England. So I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's it, there's another layer to this, and that's what happens at the Scottish level and what happens to Scottish politics as a result of this. So Sturgeon is gambling, but she's gambling both ways. Mm-hmm. I I don't think it's hypocritical. Mm. I mean, some of it accuse me of being a cynical cynic. So I'm surprised I'm saying this, but. Uh, certainly you play politics to to try to get independence but frankly uh, this is the choice being laid to the Scottish people for whether or not they want to follow the rest of the UK out of the Europe um, out of Europe or whether they stay in the EU and I think they deserve that right to have that choice whatever you think of what Sturgeon's doing this is the only way they will get that choice. Um, it's interesting that the First Minister of Wales just uh, yesterday did not go as far as Sturgeon, but he has said that we need to have now serious discussions about devolution in mm. light of what is happening. Well, I mean, the, the Welsh voted for Brexit too, so I guess they're in a slightly different tactical yeah. position. But right? still but still recognizing that this is going to have consequences for Wales. Well, the most but, important thing mm. of, from a conflict perspective for me, if we're widening this out, is Northern Ireland. It's Northern Ireland. Yeah. Right, exactly. Which, of course, right now is in a bit of limbo because yeah. of the entire government collapsing. Right, but Sinn Féin oh, hit the microphones around the same time Nicola Sturgeon did to say, mm. you know, I mean, call Sinn Féin any day for the last hundred years. They would have said today <laughs> is the day for United Ireland, but yeah. they, they made an especial play yeah. of saying... You know, these big questions are up for grabs again yeah. right now because of this. I mean, I, I mean, bringing it back to Scotland, I think you may well. I wouldn't want to predict which way the referendum, you know, the, the referendum if, is going to go yeah. if there's one held, and there's a long way to go before that. But I think here's the, the basic starting point, and that is, is that a lot of the animus for Scotland to remain part of the United Kingdom in the past 
has been not just to be part of the union, but it is to be part of the wider European community, mm -hmm. um, just as there have been those in Northern Ireland who have seen the advantage of that. Uh, yeah, and one of the arguments that used to get, but what that did get made during the last referendum was you guys would be taking a crazy risk to vote to leave the UK because you can't be sure you'll still be in the European Union uh, if, if if that happens, and that would be a catastrophe. So oh, they, uh, they'll be in the European it's, it's, Union. I mean, let's just knock no, this no, one on. The, no, but, but what I mean is that was the argument yeah. made for not leaving before. So it would suddenly the pitch you have to make uh, to stay with the UK when it is on the course of leaving the European sorry, no, Union, sorry. the thing it would have been irresponsible yeah. for Scotland to choose to do before, is got to be very different. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what to extend what I'm saying further, I mean, there's sort of a positive reason why you stayed in the Union until. Brexit. Mm -hmm. But now the argument really is you're going to stay in the union for negative reasons. And that is because you don't know what will happen to you if you step out. You don't know what the economic situation will be. And there's precious little I can see in terms of what London can offer that is positive to the Scots to stay in. Let's be honest. One of the drivers for at least almost half the Scottish population to want to be independent is the fact that a lot of power is concentrated in London. Mm -hmm. And if you're facing a future where that is still the case, and you don't even have the benefit of being part of the EU. Um, again, I may be putting forth that sort of what will probably be known as the Edinburgh elite argument. Mm -hmm. uh, how this will play out against, against Scotland, I don't know. But I, I do think, bottom line for me, it is another example of the poison of Brexit. Mm. And I mean, you know, the mood music coming out of Downing Street when this announcement got made and it was reflected to some degree in Theresa May's, you know, this is not the right time statement is the mood music that I think people in Scotland feel a lot coming from London, which is... <laughs> Jesus, we're busy, not this again. Yeah. Uh, we don't have time for this. Um, and there is a real risk that a certain constituency of the now radicalized Brexit-supporting English political scene will start to think, sure, whatever, uh, the hell with it. Um, you know, we've got to do a performance of not wanting the union to break up. But basically, if these people jog on, do whatever it is they want to do in the imagined social democratic paradise. We get pro-Brexit Tory government in England for the foreseeable future, uh, fair trade, uh, why worry? And, you know, there is a kind of baseline uh, disrespect combined with a temporary coincidence of interest with Scottish nationalists there that might not be the worst thing but for, what's left for, for those the, sides. What's left of the UK if Scotland goes, though, Adam, in terms of that, even if you're a Brexit supporter... What's left of that illusion that we've had, what, since the Act of Union in the early 18th century? Hmm. Doesn't matter, though. It doesn't really matter. People are so polarized. that. think so? Yeah, absolutely. I, don't know. I still thought there was some type of commitment to the illusion of a UK, uh, even amongst those who are Brexiteers. I guess maybe that's a misread on my part. No, I don't know. I think that those that Adam talks about, yeah. the kind of... Uh, what did you call them, radicalized mm -hmm. English Brexiteers? Well, yeah, well, I mean, I guess, I guess I mean, like, there's, some, there's a certain kind of... Um, it's a devil-may-care attitude about the consequences, essentially. Mm. And it seems like kind of quite a specific English yeah. ethno-nationalist kind of vibe that yeah. you get from a lot of the Brexit yeah. hardcore yeah. that is... That is probably not that attached to the idea of like Britain as a wonderful multicultural, no, multi-ethnic, multinational union. Where they would be attached is to the idea of uh, Scotland as, in some senses, British, therefore English, so the thousand-year-old kind of conflict. Mm. But I think that the other face of that is the, well, screw them. If they're going to, if they want, if they want out, let them fend for themselves you know, bugger hmm. off. I mean, certainly if you'd given those people the choice, you can either have Britain stay together and be in the EU forever, or you can have Britain leave the EU and Scotland go its own way. I think, I don't know, I haven't polled, but I think 90% of the, the the hard Brexiteers would have taken that. They'd have bitten your hand off for that, Yeah. Uh, even though they wouldn't acknowledge that. Maybe they don't even acknowledge it to themselves, but I think it's, it's pretty clear that's where all their principles seem to point. Mm. Well, I just reinforces to me, I think, and this is, listeners, first of all, one, these are three non-English people discussing this topic, just to make clear about this. And two, this is just my own personal animus on the issue, that what you have seen is this increasingly inward perspective, at least of, of what I've seen of many people in this country, and I can understand the reasons for some of it, 
but the combination of that increasingly inward perspective, which is more and more restricted in terms of who counts as English, who mm-hmm. counts as being here, combined with that outward paradox of, well, you know, we had a great empire and we still can command respect and we still can command uh, you know, a leading place on the world stage. And when does that contradiction finally hit people full in the face? doesn't. It won't. It's no. embedded in the psyche. Mm-hmm. I'm sticking with that. Adam looks at, Adam's kind of looking over at us, but I really do think that that dying empire mentality is going to take a long mm-hmm. time to play out. Well, I think, I, think I, 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 not necessarily on that point, although I do agree on that point, but um, more broadly, the idea of like deep, partially self-understood psychological urges yeah. is one that I would definitely go for with regard to this. I think I think this this discussion, Scottish independence and Brexit, are both discussions that would be refreshed greatly if more people were more honest with themselves and in the debate about what is really driving them and what they really what they really prioritize. Like so much of the argument takes the form of these debates about um you know, the marginal economic growth difference that might exist if one was independent or not independent. And if you go on, I I used to live in Glasgow, so I have multiple Scottish friends, and you can see them having these insanely intricate debates about the public accounts of Scotland versus Britain and oil prices and uh, social welfare spending per head and the geographical context. And, you know, as though essentially there is a technical argument about how precisely the solvency of the country will stack up and its economic prospects will stack up over the, over the long run. But very large parts of the argument, of the population having this argument, they want either independence or not independence, or they want Britain in or out of the EU for some reasons of like deep psychology and identity and ideology and brass tacks, they would be prepared to pay explicitly quite a substantial price for that if they absolutely had to choose. And they can't just come out and say that because you have to perform basic pragmatic reasonableness for the purposes of the, the, the idea that the floating voter will be alienated if you just reveal your wild-eyed commitment to you know, uh, the direction you want to go, right or wrong, expensive or cheap. You're talking about the political level. Well, or I, the or the public. Level. I think I think both. Like when I see the arguments that unfold on Facebook and uh, uh, other kinds of social media about this issue, because like, the Scottish nationalist movement is quite intense and active in, in in that field. Like one thing that absolutely shines through to me is that these arguments that take place about public accounts and growth levels, like none of it's in good faith. Like no one is actually ever going to look at those numbers uh, in a sober way and go, oh, do you know what? Um, now that now that I've seen those numbers, I've totally revised my position on wanting to be independent or not independent. People are just reverse engineering uh, like the conclusions from uh, uh, reverse engineering the appropriate data to invoke from the conclusions that they, that they want to arrive at. I think there's a tiny number of people who are actually changing their mind based on that, but everyone is performing as though that's their, that's their like that's their way of calculating the outcome here. So a question before we move on, then. which way do you see at this point, which way do you see Scottish identity going? Do you see Scottish identity in effect saying, look, this is a, you know, a separatist identity now or an independent identity? Or do you see that identity still hanging on to notions of the union um, as we get closer to this vote? I think it's going to be. It's hard to imagine Scotland being more divided, but I think it's go, it's going to get even more divided than it is right now. Because the thing is, like the SNP uh, represents itself as uh, you know the unifying patriotic voice of Scotland and Scottish people, but it is perceived by a large number of people, apparently sufficient to defeat independence in the last referendum, as a kind of incipient ideological cult uh, with some personality dimensions to it in, in regard to its leadership too and therefore you know, it, with great scepticism so like the, the depth of suspicion that a large number of Scottish people have of the SNP and the way that it uses this issue to, inst- to, to entrench its political power 
as a party uh, should not be underestimated and that's going to get you know the ideological fervor on the part of those who do support independence in the SNP will will tick up and i suspect that the reaction of those who find all of that unnerving and whose nightmare is to live in a country where this is now like the the national liberation movement uh, in in power under independence uh, that that will tick up too Okay, it's time to survey the numbers of the week, where each of us brings a numeral, connects it to a new story, and provides a little bit of chat associated therewith. Scott, you are positively itching to be up to bat. Well, I, uh, because I had various options this week, I, a, a veritable surfeit of numbers I could have chosen. There was fifty a panoply, if you will. Yeah, panoply, a myriad of numbers. Uh, there were fifty thousand, which is the number of uh, undocumented. Irish immigrants, something raised by the Taoiseach and Kenny when he visited the U.S. to the visible discomfort of anti-undocumented immigrant President Donald Trump. There was zero uh, at the low end, which is the number of microwaves proven to be able to carry out uh, surveillance sadly, in Trump Tower. Sadly, but sad it, exclamation mark. Yeah, sad, <laughs> but in the belief that instead I'd rather go big or go home. I'm going to go with 56 billion. Billion with a B. You know that Connor is not fond of these kind of numbers. I'm sorry, but it's look, let's just raise the stakes here. This is the proposed increase in the budget for the U.S. Department of Defense, mm-hmm. encompassing the American military in the first draft budget of the Trump administration, providing for more than a 10% rise in expenditure. Um, I think I'll add some other numbers to put this into context. This first draft budget, in contrast to this rise for the Department of Defense and for Homeland Security, has a 31% decrease in the funds of the Environmental Protection Administration, slashing many of its programs. Uh, State Department, 28% cut, including much of the funding for the UN, for American assistance for development, uh, it's uh, oh, only 21% cut for agricultural programs, including assistance to many people in rural areas, uh, 21% in labor programs, including training programs for the poor, the elderly, and the unemployed. Yet, despite these rather substantial cuts in these programs, that $56 billion for Department of Defense means that overall, the U.S. budget contracts by only 1.2%. In other words, a small contribution to deficit reduction. I'll just add the footnote while you consider $56 billion, that no one in the military requested this vast increase in money. Nor is it clear what it would be spent on. Apparently. That is absolutely where I was going. There is no blueprint for whether it goes on equipment, on personnel, on support for allies, probably definitely not support for allies. There's no indication that this number came up from anything except the whimsy of the heads of Trump and his advisors, which was that security consists only of security in a magical 56 billion number for the military, rather than saying security coming from environmental security, social security, Security in the arts, cultural programs. That's right, folks. Big Bird is being uh, cut in this budget or indeed in any other of the social programs that uh, have provided, apparently, uh, for the American people. But wait, wait. Big Bird is going on to unemployment benefits? That is correct. Are the unemployment benefits going to be there? Well, that's the problem is that Big Bird may be homeless, meth-addicted Big Bird when you cut public broadcasting. Because, goodness knows, why would you need security at all in American streets except for, of course, military security? Before uh, before uh, any American listeners we have uh, run screaming from their rooms, <laughs> worried that's all going to happen, uh, we should put down a, a quick marker to the effect that uh, this is the budget suggested by the Trump administration. Uh, presidential administrations do this all the time, uh, and it very rarely actually translates into the actual budget. Uh, it's more, uh, but the, the phrase uh, has sometimes been used: the budget is a moral document uh, that sets out society's priorities, and uh, it certainly gives an indication of what a presidential administration would do or wishes to send the signal it would do in the absence of um, uh, 
corrective checks from those with more institutional experience and um, uh, restraint. And uh, therefore, this document, even if it is not actually going to be translated into actual cuts of the severity suggested, tells us everything about what this administration wants to signal to its base, to the country and to the world about what it's about and what America would be about under its watch if it were unfettered. Happy days. Cristala, do you yes, have a number? Yes, I do. In fact, my number is, uh, again, in contrast to Scott's, extremely low. It is three. Now, three represents... But you're going to make a more count, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the three, that's right. Three, I see your 59 billion, and I raise you three months. Now, I've been depressed um, because it's been uh, raining and doesn't feel like spring, um, and because the world is glum, glim, grim, all of those things. Um, is that the, the middle one a word? Glim. <laughs> it is now. I've patented it. <laughs> glim is a word. It means crappy. Um, so I've been depressed because things are glim. And I'm searching for good news stories. And I've been glim not just because of the world, but also because the Cyprus peace process, which you all know that I um, am fond of, um, mm -hmm. seems to be on the rocks again, which shouldn't be a surprise given that it's been on again, off again for about 40 years. Um, but there is some good news in all of this. So there is a particular town, a Maronite Cypriot town, that has been... Um, off bounds to the Maronite community since the war in 1974 and has had um, Turkish troops stationed there. Now, apparently, according to a newspaper in Cyprus, it, within three months, Maronites from this village called Aya Marina will be returning to their homes. This is monumental in the face of a collapsing peace agreement and no goodwill anywhere. So essentially, he said, if this newspaper is to be believed that the villages of Aya Marina can start going back within three months and there will be uh, redevelopment programs that where people have actually started kind of figuring out what does um, and what does a, a, a village that has been unlived in in large part for some 40 years, what will it need? So if we pitch forward to the future of, of various conflicts today and we think about good news stories, maybe maybe three months in Cyprus for the Maronite Cypriots in a of Aya Marina is not so bad. My number of the week is also three. Oh, um, look at that, snap. Which is uh, the number of George Osborns that there would seem to need to be uh, in order for him to meet the scheduling commitments into which he has, uh, he has entered. Because... I'm sure listeners are aware George Osborne was until relatively recently the Chancellor of the Exchequer and also the uh, the chief political strategist of the Conservative Party under under David Cameron, a sort of dyad involving the two of them uh, on Downing Street, ran the party and, and the country for a while. He uh, got summarily fired uh, by Theresa May, who did not like him or the cut of his jib much when she became the Prime Minister, leaving him at a loose end uh, as to what to do with all of his time. Uh, his full-time job as a Member of Parliament, uh, of course, could not possibly uh, manage to provide him with enough activity in these lazy and easy political times. Um, so he has naturally found himself some other things to do. One which we already knew about before this week was an extremely well-remunerated, multi-hundreds of thousands of pounds a year uh, job in the city, uh, just in case... Uh, there wasn't sufficient scepticism in the country at large about the corrupt relationship between the financial services and those deployed to run the economy through the political system. Uh, but this week, we, uh, or last week, I should say, we, we discovered that he was also going to be the editor of the London Evening Standard, uh, a job which he will apparently carry out in the mornings before going in the afternoon to take up his place in Parliament to continue to participate as a... As, as a um, as a full paid up member of the democratic process and of the conservative party i guess i would i would say uh three things about this first of all what an amazingly effective way uh, to stick it to theresa may and show her that uh despite being fired for being incompetent and obnoxious uh, he is still capable of making himself felt secondly what a triumph for the ongoing project of undermining all public faith in the political system uh the man having demonstrated 
demonstrated in uh, short order uh, that it is possible to be simultaneously involved in all three parts of the corrupt nexus between the financial services, the political system and the media at the same time as having been uh, I suppose most recently associated with abject failure uh, in the claim that supposedly provided you with the expertise to seek such work and thirdly uh, I suppose we might say, what a what a wonderful stripping away, as uh, some of the cynics would have it, of the uh, pointless, needless, paper-thin norms that used to prevail in public life. Whereas it used to be simply the case that some politicians were connected with the media uh, and therefore uh, suspected of having a, to some degree, questionable uh, degree of objectivity prevail on both sides. We now no longer need to engage with such questions as the delicate balance between uh, media ownership, independent editorial judgment and uh, political support. We can simply have the politicians directly run the pol- uh, the, the, the publications which cover their and their, their party's affairs. Um, I, I know that it, it seems prissy uh, to want to preserve the tacit norms with which we used to wrestle that attempted to make political power seem like it had a delicate balancing act to undertake when it comes to these things. Um, I suppose there are those who would probably say that it is bracing now that we simply lay bare the raw struggle for power and uh, and privilege at the heart of our society. I miss the norms myself, but uh, it's a brave new world. Just over one year ago, a deal was concluded between the EU and Turkey under which Turkey would receive inducements in the form of cash and visa liberalization to, quote, stem the tide of migrants and refugees flowing westward across the border. At the time, all the fine words one would expect were provided regarding the care that would be taken to ensure the welfare of those to whom the new measures applied and the fairness of the processes by which their claims for asylum would be considered. On the deal's first anniversary, however, just past, Médecins Sans Frontières, um, the international doctors' organization, uh, published a report that painted a bleak picture of the circumstances under which those trapped at the border have been living and the effect on their physical and mental health. The International Organization for Migration, meanwhile, released figures suggesting there had been a 27% increase in migrant deaths worldwide in 2016, two 1,763, um, with 5,085 of those in the Mediterranean. Meanwhile, ugly reports emanated from Hungary, an EU member whose right-wing nationalist government has adopted some of the toughest unilateral measures to seal its border to migrants, uh, of the construction of detention camps, as well as an electrified fence along its 108-mile border with Serbia. It has just succeeded, Hungary this is, in bringing the number of asylum claimants down from 177,000 to 29,500 in just a year, according to the UN um, High Commissioner on Refugees. The Hungarian government cites fear of terrorist infiltration as its chief motive in doing all of this, though as with other countries, many have reasonable suspicions that it reflects a more general xenophobic sentiment on the part of society at large. Most European countries have experienced an upsurge in anti-immigrant feeling during this decade and the expression of that feeling by political parties. So, how should Europe's governments be handling this challenging crisis and can such shoulds be reconciled with the mood of their native populations and the imperatives of their domestic politics? So, Kristala, yes. um, that was sort of a chamber of horrors uh, of statistics and reports that I outlined uh, or took us on a tour of during the introduction. How bad is this situation? Worse. It's worse than the Chamber of Horrors that you've outlined. Um, and in answer to your question of, of how should EU states be responding better than this is the answer to that. You know, I've been joking over the course of our podcast that uh, that the Australians are going to be copy or are copy- copywriting their, uh, their approach to deterring migrant flows. And yet... It's no longer a joke. I mean, the, the the Hungarian response is the Australian policy in minute detail. The fences, the shipping containers, the dogs, the sleep deprivation, the, all of this stuff that is happening to people. 
is the um, the pioneering approach that I have seen in my own country of origin, and it's horrifying. And when you take the various avenues from which this data is coming, it's not just, as you said, it's not just Médecins Sans Frontières, and it's not just IOM, um, and it's not just the High Commissioner for Refugees. There are so many avenues from which this kind of data is flowing that it's it's horrifying. And so there are a few things that I wanted to pick up on in regards to your question of, of, of how bad is it and what how are we looking at this from within Europe? Um, so the thing, the first, the first thing to point is that the first thing to note is that leaders within various European countries are obviously touting this as a success story, right? Fewer migrants, refugees, asylum seekers flowing into European mm-hmm. countries. Yeah. If that is your absolute bordering on sole priority, then this is a celebratory occasion for well public done. policy. Well done. But if you look at the increased rates of sexual and gender-based violence especially against vulnerable communities across the whole refugee journey from exit to uh, port of entry. If you increase that, if you look at the increased number of trafficking of vulnerable people, the increased number, as you mentioned, of deaths at sea and deaths of people in transit. You look at the people who are trapped in Greece on the islands and the people who are trapped in Serbia and I fail to see how this is anything other than devastating for the people whose lives have been affected by this. So it, in case it needs to be said, if we kind of zoom out, it's not just what I've mentioned. It's not just increased deaths at sea. It's not just sexual and gender-based violations and it's not just increased trafficking and the complexity of, of the trafficking networks and opportunism and slavery. It's also this broader question of it does nothing. Our approach within Europe is doing nothing for addressing the violence and the conflict from which people are coming, uh, from which people are fleeing. So if your goal is reduced numbers of migrants in or asylum seekers in Europe, congratulations, you've done that. If your goal is reducing, even if you're looking at it from that reductionist perspective, if your goal is reducing those numbers and those efforts over the next decade or two decades, you're failing miserably, I'm telling you right now, because there is no way that without addressing the causes of violence much more comprehensively, will you be able to stem refugee flows. It's as simple as that. Well, that's a cheerful picture. But, yeah, it's the realistic one. I mean, the easy answer that my heart would say is, look, we go back once more and we say that countries that can provide, countries that have space, open their doors, they provide for refugees, uh, to get in, to have some sense of security. And, of course, the head says we are now past that point. Uh, for a variety of reasons we can go into, even Germany, which I think is to be applauded with the effort to take, what, 800,000 refugees. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not going to go any farther because Chancellor Merkel and the ruling party facing an election cannot electorally afford to open the doors anymore, not with a right-wing party like the AFD. Uh, which will seize upon that to whip up uh, some type of support. We have seen, of course, in the U.S., the ugly face of trying to shut out anyone who is a refugee uh, through the so-called Muslim ban uh, to be implemented by the Trump administration if they can overrun the courts. We have seen in Britain the extent of even trying, although they backtracked somewhat because it was just a step too far, blocking even unaccompanied children who are sitting right now are trapped in France from getting across to the UK. And, of course, we know that beyond these stories, we can tell the ones about Central and Eastern European governments. So the the literal or metaphorical fences are up. So what do you do then? And I assume, I'll draw upon uh, Cristela's expertise here, you then have to try to provide for those countries where refugees have made it to. 
there has to be far more attention to the fact that there are millions who, because of the Syrian crisis, have pitched up in neighboring countries, which raises complications, by the way, that you will have to deal with Erdogan, Turkey's Erdogan, who, as we have noted in previous podcasts, is not a saint by any means. But you will have to try to provide assistance to Lebanon, to Jordan. And we should note how uh, you can't really separate Erdogan from, from, from his policies. Yeah. But Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan have done a phenomenal yeah. amount of work. Yeah, which is a side of the story which is not elevated, which we should say here, that what we're talking about, almost 3 million refugees in Turkey, we're talking about several hundred thousand in each of Lebanon and Jordan, amounting to about 20, 25% of the country's population. You talk, yeah, I mean, there's, there's 1.5 million in Lebanon. Sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, I've underestimated. 1.5 yeah. million in Lebanon, about 700,000 in, in yeah. Jordan. And then you're talking about flows that we don't talk about, for example, who, interestingly enough, are going to Sudan, yeah. of all places, uh, a boat of Somali refugees that were bombed by the Saudis this week. Well, there has to be some type of international effort, whether that occurs through states or beyond them, to try to provide for the basics for those refugees. Then, of course, the question is, oh, well, we'll deal with the causes of what's driving these people out, but we know that's not going to happen for some time. Right now, in other words, my suggestion, I get your reaction to, is we're in a holding operation, which is at least try to provide for some minimum provision for those who are outside their home countries in camps. We need a much stronger UN on this. We need much more contribution from member states. And I hasten to add, having said this, that this is just after the U.S. has declared it is going to decrease its contribution to the UN by 50%, including by humanitarian operations, for humanitarian operations under the Trump administration. Somehow there has to be an impetus from wherever it comes from uh, if we truly do believe in outreach, civic society, and decency um, to find a way of providing for basic provision until we can get to a better point uh, to deal with the broader question. I mean, as the, as the podcast's designated uh, effort maker to hold the center ground, um, I have to declare this to be one of those issues where that is becoming uh, an almost doomed task and where at a certain point you just have to you have to keep a very clear eye on whose company you're keeping um and the good faith in which they they are making their arguments cuz what what i would say is this i believe that it is a strong right of countries to control their borders, to make decisions about who uh, can and not can and cannot enter and under what circumstances. Um, I think that is especially important if you have a redistribution-minded, welfare-state-oriented view of how politics ought to work, because I think a, a truly borderless world is not a utopia by any means if you are in a developed country and you believe strongly in, in those kinds of institutions. And, you know, sometimes when one listens to the, uh, you know, where the debate has gone in all of its polarization uh, to the... Uh, it sounds fatuous to refer to them as the pro-migrant side, but you get what I, what, what I mean by that. Um, you know, you might think that there are no legitimate questions to be answered when, in fact, there are around questions like, okay, who is a refugee and who is an economic migrant? How many of each category can be admitted to any particular country at any particular time? Will those who are refugees ever leave, or is it to be assumed that they will remain? And what quantity of these people can be assimilated without producing political backlash within within the countries that they go to. Now, those are all very reasonable concerns um, about resources, about process, all of which should be overlain with an overriding priority to be humanitarian and responsible when it comes to people in, 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 real, in real need. And if I thought that those were the questions that those who are currently leading the political drive against migrants and refugees were the question I thought that was really the conversation they wanted to have then I think it would be worth having but I look around me at the actually existing political environment we we are in I look at Donald Trump I look at uh, the Conservative Party I look at UKIP uh, I look at uh, uh, the government of Hungary etc and it is very clear that while there may be some people who are engaging in the kind of uh, public policy seminar uh, level discussion that I've just outlined, 
a much in a much deeper way this is about um, you know a, a coterie of overt neo-nazis racists demagogues race baiters uh, playing to the gallery of a panicked uh, and frightened public uh, by not appeasing but stoking their fears and you know Basically, my, the position I've ended up in is that I have much more confidence in my ability to reach with some degree of pragmatic reason those who start from the premise that we should be doing everything we can uh, to, to help refugees and migrants than I do that it's possible to engage in any kind of good faith conversation with the, the pro-migration tendency because they seem like people who, or the, the, sorry, I should say the pro-immigration uh, crackdown uh, tendency because it seems to me that... Uh, that is essentially at this point an almost wholly racist and xenophobic movement that is attempting to portray itself as being interested in, in serious matters of public policy. I'm uh, trying to argue the other side. I mean, I remember at the time of, of Brexit and talking to a colleague of ours here who was making, I think, very sound points about the way people feel about immigration. And so say, well, you know, when they come in and you have to find houses for them, when you come in and there have to be places in schools when you have to have public services like health care that are available for them. There is a tension, and we have to understand that. Mm-hmm. But and there are resource implications. There resource, as there yeah. are uh, politics, the fundamental questions of politics, who gets what and says who, right? Yes. And a large new number of people introduced from the outside into any policy has implications for that. So, yeah. of course, it will be political. But, but, but there's ideology layered on top of all of that. There are resource implications, but we're talking about a context of austerity anyway. There mm-hmm. is already... Yeah. I mean, it's not. this is not... A political conversation, obviously, that that is happening in isolation. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, but and that's the point I want to get to is that my response to that colleague is, of course, is that these questions of housing and health and education would exist if the immigrants had not come in. Yeah. This is in, in this country, for example, do a lot to cut backs in public services, and they are deliberately set in tension by again political actors acting in bad faith who want to avoid a conversation about the distribution of resources within the UK or the United States on its own merits by pointing to uh, migrants and refugees as the reason why people who lack the resources they feel entitled to are not getting them. They've spent the last several decades creating the trigger points that we now see in society and now all they're doing is pushing those buttons. I agree. But the question is what do you do now? You know they've done that and you you want to say this is wrong, this shouldn't have happened, but you're at this point now, right? And what, you know, and how do you, how do you reopen that space, which is more welcoming of the idea that refugees and immigrants are not a threat, that they in fact could be a contribution to a society. Mm-hmm. Now, and that's where I get to, I don't think we're going to be at that point with regret for some time to come now. Um, I was talking to colleagues from um, uh, from Norway at a conference last uh, last week, who were talking about uh, where they saw forthcoming elections going, and they said, "Well, at least we don't think the far right, you know, party will get in, but we're still going to have a, a central right government that's going to be very restrictive by past Norwegian standards mm. on immigration." And so, I don't think anyone's going to be opening the doors, mm. but in light of the recent election result in the Netherlands that gave us a chink of hope that perhaps people will not just simply react with knee-jerk anti-immigration at the polls. I'm just wondering if you find those points and bolster them and say, all right, maybe three, five, ten years down the line, we open up more of a space. Having said that, what I, I don't think an individual European country can step up to the mark or will step up to the mark now. I really wonder if the European Union will step up to the mark. I don't know that it I don't know that You don't it, know that it can. No, I don't know that it can. It has to be something at that level. There has to be some type of collective effort. Um, because it's nice to say it'll be civil society, NGOs and so on, but there needs to be something, you know, at that instrumental effort, whether it's a stronger UN, whether it's a stronger EU, yeah. a stronger presence which says, Look, we we are not prepared to tolerate this for years to come. Yeah. I think you're I mean, I think you're right. The points at which that is likely to happen is somewhere in the future. And I think also it bears noting that what we're talking about is how we should respond at multiple levels of interaction. We're talking about government policy or inter-government policy 
and we're talking about uh, kind of financial implications, but we're also talking, there, there is a question here about how we address the issues of xenophobia and racism and multi-ethnicity at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they are interlaced but separate um, strategies that are needed and, and at the individual level as well. You know, how do you... It doesn't affect everyone, but it affects some of us at the conversational level. How do you respond to people who say in conversation often... And, and I get it all the time. The, the, the quicker they leave, the better, and they're, they're rupturing our fragment, our, our uh, national fabric. And I say, I come from, I have family members who are refugees from Cyprus. I have friends who are refugees. We, I come from a family of economic mi migrants that were pushed out during a period of colonisation in, in Cyprus by the British, you know, I know what it feels like to be an other. And I also know what, how desperate so many people who are others are to build a life where they are integrated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are multiple levels. There's the conversational, there's the strategic, there's the educational, there is the political, and all of those need to start speaking to each other. And I know that it's easy for me to say we need to start rethinking, but... Mm -hmm. I, I think you put your finger on something quite important there, and I, I'll just raise this because it is going to be a long-term effort. I'm interested in the idea that exactly that type of message you've put out, which paralleled in, you know, in the U.S. case, would be the country would not be where it is now was it not for waves of immigration and ongoing waves of immigration that have been welcomed in the past by the U.S., for example, bolstering that. But that is... You know, we need that discourse each and every day to be up there through political movements, through civic movements, through media. social movements, through media, yeah. to humanize, to humanize immigration. Because quite often, the dehumanizing face is the one that we get in this argument. Yeah, I mean, I want to put down a marker for political leadership here, which is to say that there are a lot of different issues that get wrapped up together when it comes to migration. You know, you've got uh, issues of difference and essentially fear over, um, you know, racial and religious and other divides. People just get freaked out by people who are not like themselves being near them in greater, greater number. You've got the economic issue, yep. which is resources are thin on the ground. Not If not in actuality, then as a result of public policy choices, that is the perception and therefore you know, the perception of competition with refugees can set up. There's the terrorism angle, which is where if you are so disposed, you can throw around the idea not terribly well supported by evidence that admitting uh, large groups from the outside lays the seas for terrorism down the road. So if you are a political party without a great deal to positively sell in the way of public policy expertise or programmatic productive agenda and you want to harvest votes, taking a lot, like taking sight of all of those overlapping possibilities and just hammering that bin lid uh, with that baseball bat uh, is a way to, to, to make political profit. And if you're a mainstream party, you can throw shapes in that direction to maybe reap a harvest. What's clearly needed is political parties and movements that have political capital accrued from whatever else it is they do that's popular, being willing to spend political capital, not seek to win it, but spend political capital, trying to change the discourse around migration and, uh, and especially around refugees. Um, because so long as everybody is trying to work out like what the easiest, cheapest, and most readily electorally saleable thing to say is, well, that's probably always going to be something pretty crass and destructive and xenophobic yeah. so like a race to the bottom on who can tell the public in echo back what their like darkest eared fears uh, that is not going to be uh, the kind of space we want to we want to end up living in but there are signs there are signs I mean the biggest the party that had the biggest gains in the Dutch election I'm pretty sure was the green left yeah. party which was a pro-immigration party and in the states uh, you know Long way to go, but of course the leadership of the Democratic National Committee is is is, is Tom Perez, you know, Hispanic American, Keith Ellison, the first Muslim American in Congress, and I think that discussion in the states may be mobilized by how far the Trump administration will go with the Muslim ban and with the immigration crackdown. It's from that that opportunity paradoxically may arise, 
when people say, no, this, there is a line that you cannot cross um, in, in xenophobia and in indecency. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And when you're there, as a special favor to me, or, or maybe to Cristala or Scott, whichever one of us you feel most like doing a personal favor for, uh, leave us a rating or a comment because that helps others discover the pod and also um, uh, solicit. Uh, new listeners and discovery for us. Please share us on social media. Tell people, hey, I listen to this podcast. You should really think about it too. It's awesome. Um, even if you don't believe that, pass us on. Like, like the tape in the ring introduces into other people's lives that you might be free. Um, come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash poll worldview, and uh, you can find links to the show and post your own comments and read other, uh, other links that we put up there to stories and whatnot. Our participants today have been... Cristalia Kinthu, where can people find you on social media, Cristal? You can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, which is, Adam, would you like to spell it this time? Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Beautiful, beautiful intonation also. Just don't ask me to pronounce it in the native Greek. <laughs> and Scott, where are you dwelling internet-wise these days? I am always at Political Worldview, Worldview's partner, the news and analysis site EA Worldview, eaworldview.com, or... On Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook if you want to track me down there. Picture me next to a towering Lyndon Johnson in the photo profile. I can be found on Twitter, although I use it less often, at Adam James Quinn. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham, England. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Goodbye. So long. Bye.